Today's reading from the Word of God comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 1 through 7 and 17 through 44. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 1 through 7 and 17 through 44. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, The sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me.
When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. I am so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. Um, Let's give Tina a round of applause for reading that long passage. This is one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of John. I probably could say that about every story in the Gospel of John, but I am really excited to unpack this with you this morning. Um, But before we get into it, I want to just invite us to be quiet, to pray, to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us with whatever we brought into the room this morning, and I will open us with a word of prayer after a moment. God, we thank you that you meet us exactly where we are. That when we are in a place like Mary and Martha, when we don't know where you are or what you're doing, or when we are in a place like Lazarus was where we need your resurrection power in a certain place in our life, we know that you come and you meet us. And so we pray this morning that you would meet us in those places today, that we would see ourselves in this story and your story, and that today we would walk out more changed and more transformed into people who look like you and who want to see the world transformed as well. We thank you for your invitation to be part of that. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, lots of you know that I love TV. I love TV, particularly TV about post-apocalyptic dystopian societies and supernatural things like werewolves and vampires and stuff. So it makes sense to me that a lot of people are telling me right now to watch The Last of Us. Any Last of Us fans? This is kind of this is one of the most popular TV shows right now in our country. It's one of the year's hot, hot new shows. It's about a global pandemic because obviously we want to unpack what that feels like. But this pandemic is caused by a mass fungal infection that turns people into zombies, and the zombies are taking over society. Sounds like my jam. But I tried it, and I don't love it. I'm more into, I'm more of like a werewolf and vampire person than a zombie person. But a lot of our country seems to love this show, The Last of Us. There's, there's something that we love about a good zombie story. And there's a researcher, a zombie researcher, those exist. Her name is Dr. Sarah Loro, and she set out to find out why. Dr. Loro started to notice some trends over the last few decades. So in the early 2000s, you might remember these things called zombie walks. Did anyone see like pictures of zombie walks or participate in a zombie walk? People would just dress up like zombies and then they'd walk around in major cities like this big kind of zombie parade, just being zombies. And then in 20, I think 2012, there was the explosive popularity of the TV show The Walking Dead. People got really into that. Movies like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, really cool movie. Exercise clubs and apps were developed where you could actually, the, the incentive to go running was that zombies were chasing you. Zombie culture even spread to public health. The CDC, the Center for Disease Control, has an entire section on their website and a 40-page graphic novel about zombie preparedness. And of course, they claim that this is just a teaching tool. They claim. And now we have The Last of Us, another TV show about zombies. Why? Why does our culture get into zombies? Well, Dr. Sarah Loro set out to research why, and, and just to note, someone funded her zombie research. Like, she, she went up to somebody and she's like, I have this idea about zombies, and they wrote her a check to fund her research. That's crazy to me. So after interviews and studies, she, she came up with a theory. She wrote this. We are more interested in the zombie 
at times when as a culture we feel disempowered. And the facts are there that when we are experiencing economic crises, the vast population is feeling disempowered. Either playing dead themselves or watching zombie TV shows provides a great variety of outlets for people. Zombies get popular at a time when society feels most dissatisfied about the world. Hence, another popular zombie TV show in 2023. As a society, there is a kind of general feeling of discontent and disillusionment. And for lots of Christians, if we are feeling that discontent in any way, shape, or form, that discontent has also made some of us question the faith that we always put our trust in. Now, don't get me wrong. People want to believe. We want to follow Christ. We want to hope. And at the same time, lots of us are asking fresh questions about what faith looks like in a changing world like ours. Is this thing that I've always been taught to believe, is it really true? Is Jesus really who he says he is? And maybe you are here today and you are in that place. And maybe those questions are looming large in your mind, or maybe there's just some little questions on the side that come up for you. But if you're in that place, you might be in a place of what we call deconstruction. I was, I was talking with a friend the other day who's a spiritual director, and she said that about half of the people that she meets with are in a place of deconstruction. And I could resonate with that too. As a pastor, not a week goes by without meeting with a Christian who's asking some big questions about their faith. So what is deconstruction? You might have heard that term. It's kind of a buzz, buzzword in churches these days. I like how uh, writer Rachel Held Evans described, described deconstruction. She said deconstruction means taking massive inventory of your faith, tearing every doctrine from the cupboard, and turning each one over in your hand. In other words, deconstruction is a place of questioning. It's wondering if what you always assumed was true is actually true. And lots of us have been in that place, or maybe we know someone who's in that place. I have been in that place. So if that's you and you're here, I am so glad that you're here. If you're, if you're here and you're feeling like, man, this faith that I grew up with, I'm just not sure about this aspect of it anymore, or, or I have some really big questions about this, or I'm just not sure if some of these things are true, I know from experience that that can be really lonely. And it can be really scary. And, and it can feel sometimes like the foundation that you built your life on, it just isn't holding you up anymore. But if you're here and you're in that place, I want you to know that you are not alone. You are not alone in the church. You are not alone in our church. And while deconstruction can feel disorienting, it can actually be a really important part of the Christian life. Sometimes we need to ask the hard questions so that we can understand why we believe what we believe. Sometimes we need to deconstruct harmful beliefs or harmful practices so that we can reconstruct faith in a healthy way. So the problem itself isn't with deconstruction. The problem comes in when we end up deconstructing and we just camp out there forever without any, doing anything constructive or reconstructive on the other side. When we end up just kind of tearing things down without being willing to, to build something or, or build a new foundation in their place. And so this morning... I want to take a look at how Jesus responds to some people who are questioning their faith. They're asking hard questions about whether or not what they believed about Jesus before is actually true, about who he is. 
And so no matter where you are on your faith journey, whether you're feeling a, a lot of faith in this moment, a lot of hope, or whether you're feeling a lot of doubt, I hope that you can find yourself in this story. And this, this morning we are continuing our sermon series called Signs and Wonders, where we're looking at all of these signs and, and miracles that Jesus uh, would share with his followers to, to show them who he really was. And this morning we are looking at one of Jesus's most famous parables, or uh, miracles, the story of Lazarus. And this is the closest thing that we get in the Bible to a zombie story, but it's not a zombie story. So if you brought your Bibles, I'd invite you to open up with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. And spoiler alert, before we even get started, Lazarus gets raised from the dead. Like his name has kind of become synonymous with being raised from the dead, with resurrection, right? I heard a preacher once say that we read stories in the Bible with the end in mind. With the end in mind. And what he meant was that so many of us, especially if we grew up in the church, so many of us are so familiar with some of these stories in the Bible that we, our minds automatically just kind of skip to the end and we miss what's happening in the middle. So if you have been part of the church for a while, you probably know this story pretty well. The facts are these. Lazarus gets sick. His sisters ask Jesus to come and fix him. Jesus doesn't. Jesus comes after Lazarus is already dead. Jesus meets with the sisters. They're pretty upset that he didn't come and save Lazarus. And then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Lots of us know how this story ends. But what if just for today, we imagine that we didn't? What if this morning God is inviting us to jump into the middle of the story instead of skip to the end? And what if God is inviting us to, to hear a fresh word through the experiences of Mary and Martha and Lazarus? So with that, let's start with verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. This is the phone call you don't want to get. The person that you love is sick. They have cancer. They got in an accident. We don't know what's wrong, but they're, they're running some tests. This is honestly, it's my worst nightmare. When I get the, those phone calls, someone I love is sick. And lots of us have been in that situation. What do we do when we find ourselves in this situation? We, we drop everything, right? We ask everyone that we know to pray. We set up GoFundMe pages. We, we look up the best doctors. We reach out to the people that we know will help. And so Mary and Martha, they do exactly what we would do in that situation. They reach out to the person that they know could help them. They reach out to Jesus, the famous healer. And they say, Lord, the one you love is sick. And they know they know that Jesus is going to come through for them because these siblings, they aren't just random faces in the crowd begging for healing. These are Jesus's friends. These are people who are in his entourage. These are the people who are hanging out in the green room while he's on stage, and then they're there with him at the after party. Lord, the one you love is sick. Surely when they need a miracle, they can count on their celebrity friend who just heals sick people on the side of the road to come running for them, right? Jesus has never let them down before, until now. Jesus gets word, come quickly, and then he does something they never thought that he would do. He waits. Jesus waits. And by the time Jesus finally does get there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. What? By that time, four days later, Lazarus's sisters, they've eaten the casseroles. The flowers from the funeral have started to wilt. The relatives who flew in for the services have already flown back. 
the house is starting to feel quieter, emptier. It's done. The reality of what's happened is starting to sink in. Jesus didn't come. Their prayers didn't get answered. They didn't get the miracle. They never imagined that this could happen to them. Jesus could have prevented so much pain, but he didn't. Why? And I bet that we have asked that question too. I bet that all of us can recall a time in just five seconds when you turned to God for help and you ended up asking at the end of it, why not? Why didn't you come? And then the unspoken question behind that question, are you even who I thought you were? Do you even care? Can I trust you like I always thought that I could? It's a natural question, right? When we're feeling disillusioned with life, when the faith that you banked on just isn't panning out. Because so many, like so many of us, Mary and Martha, they believed that Jesus was going to come through. They considered themselves close to Jesus, but when he took his time, when he allowed the suffering, when he didn't live up to who they thought that he would be, it shook their faith. It shook everything they ever believed about who Jesus was. These are two sisters. They have very different personalities, very different women, and they have very different reactions to loss and pain. But from both women, we hear the same accusation to Jesus. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus finally gets to their house, he does something important. He makes time for that. He makes time for their real emotions, for their real questions. He listens to them. He hears them. He takes it. He receives their disappointment, their anger, their grief, their blame, their sadness. He lets them feel betrayed for a minute. He doesn't see their pain and their grief and, and use it as an opportunity to instruct them about sin and repentance or the fires of hell. He doesn't chide them for their lack of faith. He doesn't use their tragedy as an opportunity to give them some theological explanation for how things are, or for what's about to happen, at least not yet. He doesn't brush them off. He doesn't rush past their pain. What he does is he just sits with them. He joins them in the middle of the story for a minute, for the painful part, the part where Lazarus is dead, and there's not really a good explanation yet that they can understand for why Jesus didn't come. So let's take a look at how Jesus interacted individually with these two sisters. First, Martha. So if you've read the Gospel of Luke, you've, you've learned a little bit about Martha. Martha is often characterized as the, the busy one, the one who failed to choose the better thing of sitting at the feet of Jesus. But I never liked that interpretation of Martha. Martha was a complicated person, just like we all are. And we can't reduce her relationship with Jesus to just one stressed out interaction when she's trying to throw a dinner party. Because these moments, this moment with Martha and Jesus here at Lazarus's tomb, it also showcases Martha as a woman of great faith. So with Martha, Jesus drops one of the most powerful truths that's ever been spoken out loud. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. So notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, I will bring the resurrection, or the resurrection is coming soon, just wait for it, or the resurrection is going to happen in the last days. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. 
right here, right now, right in front of you. You're looking into the face of the resurrection and life. Martha's friend doesn't just bring life. He is life. And then just like Jesus often does, he turns this time, this moment when we question him into a moment when he questions us. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this, Martha? Take a second and imagine Jesus asking you that question and asking you that question by name. Do you believe this, Shilpa? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this, Tim? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this, Monet? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this, Martha? Some of you know that one of my favorite writers is the woman that I quoted at the beginning of the sermon, Rachel Held Evans. And Rachel Held Evans died tragically a few years ago when she was about my age. But her books have kind of been mentors in print for me during my own seasons of deconstruction. And she used to preach sermons in churches, and and she had something that she would do famously. She would read scripture at the beginning of her sermons, and then she would start her sermon by saying this. She said she'd read the scripture, and then she would say, on the days when I believe this. On the days when I believe this. For Rachel, it was this humble, honest admission of her own doubts. And it gave everyone else a sigh of relief because it gave them permission to say, there are days when I have trouble believing this too. Jesus is calling out to us in scripture. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And on the days when I believe this, it changes everything. On the days when I believe this, I'm not afraid of bad news. On the days when I believe this, I have strength to overcome difficult things. On the days when I believe this, I believe that we will all be healed and free. On the days when I believe this, I am confident that Jesus rose from the dead and is right now reconciling all things to himself. On the days when I believe this, I am certain that death and pain do not get to have the last word. On the days when I believe this, I believe that resurrection in Christ starts right now with Jesus alive in us. On the days when I believe this, I believe that God is not finished with this story yet. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And Martha says, yes. On that day, she believed it. And it changed everything. But I have to imagine that there there were days when she did not believe this. Days when despair won, when cynicism won, when doubts overcame her. And on those days, which are days that we all have, there was nothing left for her to hope for. And I think it's in that kind of day that we meet Mary, Martha's sister. And Jesus meets Mary where she is too. So if we look at the story of Mary, Mary hasn't even bothered to come outside and meet Jesus where he is, but he calls her and she runs out to meet him and she falls at Jesus' feet And like her sister, she says the same words. She says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Martha and Mary, they say the exact same words. But when I imagine Martha saying it, she's angry. And when I imagine Mary saying it, she's heartbroken. For Martha, Jesus offers these words of truth and promise. But for Mary, there are no words. 
There's no grand statements. There's no challenging questions. Jesus just asks to see the tomb. And they take him to where Lazarus has been buried in the tomb. And the gospel just tells us these two powerful words. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. This is as clear as any other passage in scripture that tells us that Jesus doesn't sit coldly at a distance. Jesus feels. And he feels deeply. He feels what we feel. He has suffered. And so he knows what it's like to suffer. And here's our invitation from Jesus' interaction with Mary. When we are in that place, when the suffering gets to be too much, when the questions get to be too much, we can bring those real emotions and those real disappointments and those real questions for Jesus. There is room in this faith and there is room in this church and there is room in Christ for that part of the story, for the questions, for the lament, for grief, for doubt. And I am convinced, I am convinced that even without the easy answers, the questions themselves, when we bring them humbly and honestly to Jesus, when we continue bringing them to God instead of walking away, those questions themselves can be a profound act of faith. Both Mary and Martha were disillusioned about Jesus, but they looked him in the eye and rather than walking away, they, they faced the Messiah that they thought they understood, and they asked for a new explanation. And he met them each with exactly what they needed in that moment. So know that when you come out and you ask Jesus your questions, he might answer you. He might respond with a question for you. He might invite you to choose him in the midst of the questions. He might cry with you. He might wait with you. But no matter what, God is going to meet you. But the story doesn't end with the two sisters in disillusionment. Jesus knew that there was more to the story, even as he sat with them in their grief. Lazarus is dead. And John's gospel said that he, he's been dead for four days. Now, the, the timing of four days is intentional. Jewish tradition taught that a person's soul lingered near their physical body for three days. And so waiting an extra day, Jesus is making sure that everyone agrees Lazarus is really, truly dead. And they're at the tomb, and he says, take away the stone. And Martha, ever practical Martha, doth protest. She says, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. If they remove the stone, the, the stench of Lazarus's rotting body is going to be horrible, I like how some of the older, our older biblical translations translate this. It says, he stinketh. <laughs> but Lord, he stinketh. And Jesus looks at Martha and he says, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Do you believe this, Martha? And she has no more protests left. So they roll away the stone and what an unbelievable moment. Like, I was trying to imagine what this would even feel like in this moment. I couldn't even wrap my brain around it. It's like one of those moments, like, I cannot believe this is actually happening. I'm actually seeing this with my own eyes. And Jesus steps forward, and he says, Lazarus, come out. This is the same voice that commanded the world into existence. This is the voice that says, let there be, and it was. That voice commands Lazarus to come out. And the dead man came out. I don't think he had another choice. 
In one minute, we see Jesus weeping and consoling, and in the next, he's raising a man from the dead. And then, this is my favorite part of the story, what happens next. He tells Mary and Martha and the whole crowd, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Some of our translations say, unwrap him or unbind him. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Lazarus, Lazarus has been raised from the dead, but he's still bound by the clothes of death. He's alive, but he's still wearing the garments of death. Jesus could have zapped those away and given him clean clothes in a second, but he doesn't. It's going to take the hands of the the sisters and his friends to approach this zombie-like man and unbind him and set him loose to life again. With those words, Jesus is inviting the community to be part of a miracle. He's inviting the community into the work of the resurrection. You and I, as followers of Christ, we are always invited to be in on what God is doing and to be part of new life. You and I have been deputized, commissioned, empowered, and enabled to live as followers of Christ in this world, even on days when we're questioning what that looks like. There is always an invitation to participate in the unbinding of what was dead and what is now alive. There's always an invitation to participate in the feeding of the multitudes, in the sharing, in the unbinding, in the taking off of the grave clothes that we're all still wearing in certain aspects of our lives, even in the resurrected life. Because Lazarus wasn't the only person who was raised from the dead. A little while later, Jesus himself would go to his own death. And there were a few days in there when the disciples didn't know the end of the story. They thought that Jesus had just died, and that was the end of it. But a few days later, Jesus' uh, Jesus's disciples, they found his empty tomb, and John's gospel records this amazing detail that I'd never noticed before this week. He writes this, Then Simon Peter, who's at the tomb, saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. The first thing that they found in the empty tomb was Jesus' grave clothes just left in the grave. Jesus didn't come back to life and need help taking off the remnants of death. His death overcame all death. There was no more need for dead man's clothes for Jesus. He had no need for help from his community to unbind him. After Jesus' resurrection, it was done. Death was done. And in its place, he offered us a new kind of life. When we identify with Christ, we identify with the death of death, and we stand on the side of love and life and resurrection. On the days that we believe that, on the days that we believe that, we choose resurrection and new life when the alternatives could be despair and cynicism. Listen, friends, our world is still wearing grave clothes, and those grave clothes need peeling off. And our invitation as people who identify with the resurrection, even on the days that we're questioning, is to come alongside Christ and help remove the remnants of sin and death and shame that are still lingering in one another and in our world. Because as individuals, as a culture, our society, our social structures, our governments, our systems, our world, we're we're still wrapped in grave clothes. We still walk around with things that need to be left in that tomb, things like death and decay, racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, classism, loneliness, shame, poverty, fear. 
And here we are, we are standing outside of the tomb with a promise, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? It'd be easy to look at the way that the world is and to stand at a distance, to say this thing is already beyond repairing, it's already dead, Jesus failed, that stinketh. And that could be the end of the story. But I will tell you this, that on the days that I believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the new life, on the days when I join Jesus in taking off grave clothes, everything changes. It changes for those around me, and it changes for me. And here is the promise that when we are willing to get our hands dirty and join Jesus in the work of the resurrection in our world, when we will get close to the dead to bring in new life with Christ, then we get to see resurrection power up close, and nothing can grind us, ground us in Christ like that. You could think of it as your own original research into the claims of Christ. How does resurrection work? Now, whenever I have a conversation with somebody, I listen for God's resurrection in whatever they are going through. So if you've met with me, that's what's going on in my head. What, how is God um, making all things new here? How can I find resurrection here? Where is God at work in this story? What grave clothes need to come off here? And it is a gift to me that I get to do this professionally because seeing resurrection happening in others, it helps me see God's resurrection work in me. This is our invitation as a church to take off grave clothes for one another, to point other people toward the resurrection that is happening inside of them when they're struggling to see it themselves. I was sitting with a friend a little while ago who'd been struggling with kind of a general malaise and disillusionment from, with life for a while. And, and at one point in the conversation, she just said, I just don't see my way through this. I think maybe this is just my life now. And it broke my heart for her because all she could see was the bad news. And we all have those moments in our stories when the bad news just seems to be taking over. And I admired her for being honest about it. I admired her for naming it, for praying about it for going to God with it instead of choosing to run away. But I also knew that in the midst of the bad news, that the resurrection story was somehow weaving its way into the bad news of her story. And it was like I could hear Jesus telling me, Bryn, help me take these grave clothes off so she can go. And so I asked her, so, so in the past, when you're feeling okay, when you're feeling close to Christ, what helps, what brings you hope? And she said, friends showing up for me and spending time with me, beauty and artwork and creation, the promise of a new mind in Christ. And so I asked her to tell me what the last day and week had been like for her. What had she seen and, and done? And she said that in the past day, she had spent some time with some good, faithful friends. She took a walk in creation. Promises in scripture had randomly popped in her head. And that was all Christ showing up in her story. She just, she just couldn't see it. And Christ was calling her out of the tomb into resurrection life. And so sitting there together, we got to name that. And we got to start unbinding some of those old grave clothes together. She got healed a little bit that day. And so did I, because I got another picture of what resurrection power looks like in somebody's life, up close. And it helped me feel closer to Christ. Writer Barbara Brown Taylor wrote it, said it like this. She said, resurrection is always announced with Easter lilies, the sound of trumpets, bright streaming lights. But it did not happen that way. If it happened in a cave, it happened in complete silence, in absolute darkness, with the smell of damp stone and dug earth in the air. Whether it is a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, new life starts in the dark. Jesus has promised resurrection and new life. 
and we get to be a part of that story. It's one thing for us to sing resurrection songs and clap and celebrate on Easter, or to offer platitudes at funerals about how this isn't the end of the story. It's another thing to believe that our practice of resurrection has implications for ourselves and for each other and for the whole world now. It's another thing to already to believe that God is already removing the grave clothes. And on days when I believe this, I get to be part of the world being healed and transformed. If you are a parent or a caregiver, this is really important for the next generation. The next generations are not content to sit by and watch Lazarus come out of the tomb still bound up in grave clothes. Gen Z, Gen Alpha, they're known as the good news generation. They want to see the world change. Our kids, they're ready to, to tear the grave clothes off and pass out bread to the hungry and dismantle structures that oppress people. And if we as a church, or if we as the church, aren't leading the way in that effort, if we aren't joining Jesus in tearing off the grave clothes now, then the next generations will go looking for that truth and that opportunity somewhere else. They will believe that the work of the church and the healing of the world are entirely separate. So our kids need to see that the church isn't just a part of the movement of social transformation, but that we are leading it. It's part of why we do Serve Sundays and why we talk about justice work. It's why we're, we try to be proactive about asking each other how we're doing and praying for each other and reminding each other of the promises of Christ, why we confess to each other the things that we're struggling with. It's why we start ministries and partner with local organizations that are trying to help in the healing of the world, like feeding the hungry and supporting immigrants and offering healthcare clinics to people who, who don't have healthcare. As a church, we want to tear the grave clothes of the world off. We want to see resurrection up close, just as Jesus invites his followers to, to. I am the resurrection and the life. Do we believe this? So friends, if, if you are here this morning and you are doubting and you're asking questions, there is room for your questions in this story. There is room for your grief. Stay in that place with Jesus for a while if you need to. But I would encourage you, don't stop there. Don't camp out there forever. Follow him to the tomb. Watch as he calls the dead people out, as he calls Lazarus out and you out and me out, out of the grave and into new life. Come and see it happening up close. And then together, let's help him tear off the grave clothes because when we do, we get to see resurrection up close. And that can change the world. Well, before I close, um, periodically we like to invite people in the congregation to share about what their stories have looked like. And so I want to invite Sarah Archer to come forward. She's going to share her story. Let's give Sarah a round of applause. Sarah um, has, in my getting to know Sarah, has um, experienced Christ in unique ways. And Jesus has met her in unique ways in her story. Let me get this out of your way. And I've gotten to see some of the grave clothes coming off, even just as you've been part of our church. So thank you for sharing. You're welcome. So first, I want to take a moment to thank Pastor Byrne and the entire pastoral team for giving me the opportunity to share my story with you all. The... Um, I, my story of faith starts probably when, the way most start. My parents knew before I was born that I was going to have spina bifida. 
for some, that may have been scary, especially after the doctors gave horrible extreme versions of the disability, saying stuff like, I wouldn't be able to do anything for myself, I'd have the IQ of a basset hound, and they'd just have to abort and try again for a perfect child. However, my mother, being the wonderful, amazing Christian woman she is, stood up, slammed her hands down on the desk, and said, there's no such thing as perfect. Then stormed out of the office, never to go back. Meanwhile, I was unaware of what was happening out in the world, but at that time, God came down, wrapped his arms around me, and said, don't worry, I picked the right family for you. You'll be loved and cared for. So I guess that's where faith started for me. Sadly, no matter how I was accepted at home, in the real world, people treated me like a leper, crossing the street and staring, then crossing back once they'd passed me, whispering and pointing. However, like in Matthew 8, 1 through 3, Jesus said, uh, Jesus laid his hands over my heart and said, be cleansed. And I was cleansed, not of physical, but of my feelings towards those people. This is when I knew that God was my savior. He was, he backed my knowledge by saying, I was always by your side. To say my childhood was not pretty is putting it mildly, but I would still wake up and thank God. When I was eight, I got a service dog to try and help with my disability and my needs. My acceptance outside the house, however, then I had to deal with adults coming up to talk to me, but they talk over me to my parents, asking questions about my dog. Kids were much easier to deal with. They would come up to me and want to talk right to me. Sadly, the parents would stop them most of the time and point to my parents. Due to me not feeling accepted, I got very depressed as a child, and I even wanted to die at some points. But I'd still wake up daily and praise God. When I was 11 or 12, I was so depressed that I stopped caring for myself and my life, whether I lived or died. One day I told my mom I was going to my room to take care of myself. Only after about 15 minutes, she heard crying coming from my room. She came in and asked me, did I take care of myself yet? I said, no. She asked why, and I said, because mom, I don't care. I don't care about anything anymore. I could see the hurt in her eyes, but I just didn't care. So I continued to say, in fact, I have rarely taken care of myself most of this week. She started to cry, 
and hugged me and said, you need to take care of yourself because lots of people care about you and they don't want to see you dead or attached to a machine for the rest of your life. Then she kissed me, wiped my tears from my eyes and left me to take care of myself. I got in bed and thought about what she had said. As I took care of myself, and as I finished, God came down again, wrapped his arms around me, and said, I did not put you with this family at this time to have you kill yourself or be attached to a machine for the rest of your life. I did it to prove my people are strong, tough, and can do anything. I left my room with a smile on my face, hugged my mom, and told her it would never happen again. I mean, I had lots of people throughout my life asking why I didn't just learn to walk. And as a kid, I tried it, but two things happened. It scared me because every time I took a step, I felt like I was going to fall. Granted, I knew the people around me wouldn't let that happen. I... But still, it scared me. Then, near the last time, I put on my braces to walk, God spoke to me and said, what are you doing? I didn't put you on this earth to fit in. I put you here to stand out and to show you are special. Do you dare doubt how I made you? After that, I smiled, made a silent vow to him. I would never lace up my braces to walk, but instead embrace how he made me because God doesn't make mistakes, and we have no right to question him for how he made us. At some point during COVID, we were looking for a new church, and we found this church's live stream. Our first Sunday in person was Celebration Sunday. When the church went from High Rock North Shore to Anchor Bay Church, I felt so accepted by everyone by everyone offering help and welcoming. It truly felt like I had found my church, home, and family. Early in January, Mom was, was talking to Shelly from church, talking about me and, getting, and her getting over being sick and my upcoming surgery on the 25th. Shelly asked if there was anything that she could do and she asked if she could share with Pastor Dean. My mom said, absolutely. So Shelly talked to Pastor Dean and set up a meal train. Uh, people we had not even met yet were signing up. I felt God's love and the fellowship of this church come over me. And I wanna thank everyone who prayed and sent us a meal. So every time I had tried to take things in my own hands, God showed me that he is right there to guide me back. Thank you. We are, we are so glad that you're here. Um, thank you so much for your courage and sharing your story with us. Can I pray for you? Of course. Can I put my hand on your shoulder? Absolutely. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you so much for Sarah. We thank you for the ways that you have been at work in her life in really profound ways. We thank you that you have made her exactly how you made her. And that in and through that, she is experiencing your glory and your power and that we get to experience it too. So we pray that you would continue to work resurrection into her story, that she would see your work at power in her, with power in her. And that on the days when she is struggling, on the days where she wonders where you are, we pray that you would empower us to be her community and to take the grave clothes off with her, just like she's doing for us. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.